Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Got a lot to talk about today, and I want to get right into it. Uh, but seriously, Living Word Family Church, I'm, it's so nice to be with you, and I hope we never fall back into taking this for granted. You know, this every week I'm reminded what a privilege it is to be here with you. Good morning also to those of you who still can't be with us and are watching from home uh, or from far away. Love to hear from you uh, about how, this, how these uh, services have blessed you or helped you or uh, caused you to manifest demonically or whatever. Uh, let us know. Drop us a line. I stole that line from pastor that uh, pastor of the church where Beth and I met. Uh, I spent a lot of time this past week reading the, the two epistles from Peter because I believe they have a lot to say about some of the things we're dealing with in this season of life. And I want to share with you some of those observations and some things that I believe the Lord laid on my heart for this morning. Now, you know about Peter, right? You remember, he was one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, and John. He was a little bit of a hothead. Uh, and he was the one who, after he, he made the famous confession, you are, the, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus said, and I say to you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, this is who Peter really was, that was his name, Peter, Jesus renamed him, he said, I say unto you, you are Peter, meaning rock. And then he went on to say, and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he used a different word for rock there, I'm not going to talk about that. I am perfectly convinced Jesus was not saying he was going to build the church on Peter, but on the truth of, the, of Peter's confession, that he's the Christ. But he did give Peter the name Rock, which was kind of a great faith confession on the part of Jesus because Peter wasn't known for his stability at the time. But you read his letters here, and they are all about steadfastness, stability, being established. Live your life like this even when life around you, when the world seems to be going crazy. Uh, so this is Peter, the rock, teaching us about steadfastness. So the name of this message is Rock Steady. And we're going to play that song. No, we're not. There's a couple great Rock Steady songs, but we're, we'll, they, I couldn't fight, quite work them into this message. But I do want to start uh, just by reading First uh, Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, there's super, something super important to recognize here. I spent several weeks recently discussing the topic of faith, and in particular, faith's confession. This is a church that is built on the word of faith. And I remain convinced that it is God's plan not, it is absolutely not God's plan for us to crawl and slog through this life on our hands and knees, suffering constantly, and that we experience nothing good here, all so that we might appreciate heaven more. I believe that when Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and life more abundantly, that that abundance is something we can and should experience here and now. Thank you. I'm not interested. I believe, are you listening? I believe healing is for here and now. I believe abundant provision is for here and now. And the authority of the believer can be experienced and exercised here and now. And we are promised victory in the here and now. But when people talk about having a life here on earth that is just like heaven in terms of pleasure, abundance, ease, and even intimacy with God, they are straying from Scripture. We can absolutely have intimacy with God 
and we can see our prayer life improve and see more answered prayer and walk in greater manifestation of authority and victory. But this is not heaven. Can we accept that? This was some time ago, but I read an article by a pastor, and I was interested in reading it because I knew this pastor and had heard some things that concerned me about some of the teaching that he was uh, presenting. So I read an article by him, and it was all about Jacob's dream. And you remember Jacob, his famous dream about the, the stairway or ladder between heaven and earth, and he saw angels ascending and descending. Uh, and he writes about this dream and, and comes out with this statement that said, don't you see what the message of this dream is? He's saying that heaven and earth are the same thing. Like, that doesn't even make sense. Then why is there anything connecting one to the other? But this was his message. That it was just kind of like, well, it's all mixed up. Angels are going there. They're coming down here. It's one thing's the other. And this was like, this was whole idea that, that, that what God's telling us with this this dream that, that Jacob had was that we need to see this earth, this life, as the heaven that God has for us. My reaction was not, my first reaction was not show me chapter and verse. Because you can certainly show chapter and verse. We just read a verse here, and I'll go back and emphasize it here in a second. My reaction was, well, my reaction was like, because I'm not super proud of what my reaction was. But my reaction was like, give me a break. I knew where this guy lived. Beautiful home in the country. It wasn't luxurious, but it was nice. Lots of acreage, beautiful piece of property. He's young. He's got a beautiful family. They all have their health. He's, he, he's prosperous. He lives in the richest and most powerful nation on earth in a safe community. And you know what? If your ambitions are humble and your imagination is limited, then perhaps you can, you can accept that as heaven. You know, it doesn't get any better than this. It better get better than this. You, treat, you take that message that this is heaven and preach it in the streets of Delhi or Niamey, Niger, or the slums of Mexico City, or in the gulag of northern Russia. Preach that message to any hundreds of millions of people in thousands of cities all over the world. And you know what your re the reaction is going to be? If they believe it, they will absolutely sink into despair. If they know their Bibles, they will ridicule you. Or they'll just ignore you for having no idea what kind of life they have. And Peter, what we just read here, writes very clearly that our inheritance is reserved for us, where? In heaven. Now, it doesn't mean we don't receive blessings now. It's kind of like if somebody leaves you $10 million in a kind of trust or something that you can't access yet. Uh, you don't get to touch this principle until you're 60. But guess what? You can live off the interest there's still blessings, there is still fruit for you out of this account that has been reserved for you. You just don't get it all yet. Doesn't mean it has no effect on your life. Our heavenly inheritance absolutely does bleed into this life, and we access that with faith. And it's abundant. I said 10 million, maybe it should be 10 billion. Just calculate what 1% of that is. You can live off that, believe it or not. My point, Peter's point actually, is not to lose sight of the real thing. I believe God wants us to enjoy life here, but our enjoyment of life here should never detract from our anticipation of our heavenly home and our heavenly rewards. And it was important to remind people when he wrote this that it was because people were going through some hard times. He goes on right after this to talk about the trials they are experiencing and that, and that they are going to have actually a positive effect in the end. And he compares it to gold. He says, gold, valuable as it is, has to be refined and purified through fire. And he says, and when you go through fiery trials, the result is that your faith is purified. And God's going to be glorified by that. So let's, let me, let me uh, skip ahead here. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 still, uh, beginning in verse 13. Therefore... Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, 
and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is something still in the future. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now the main point here is to take your life of faith seriously and to focus on holiness in our lives. But this passage starts with that, rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought about brought to you at the, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the second coming, the return. I'm going to go quickly here because I'm building up to a, a main practical point. Peter encourages his readers then to see themselves as, a, a, as specifically set aside for God's purposes, for God's possession. And you know this part, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And his emphasis then is on how we should live in light of that. Since we are different, our lives should look different. And, uh, and that that starts with that the, the absolute distinguishing characteristic of us as God's people is what? Love, fervent love for one another. And then goes on uh, to talk about submission and authority in the family, at your job, and in, in, uh, in, in when it comes to government. And uh, it is in the middle of this section that we encounter one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament. I've preached it several times, including very recently. I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to read it to show you that context. This is 1 Peter 2.11 2, uh, and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, I'm not going to re-preach that just giving you a little context, that the things he's saying about love for the brethren and about marital relationship and suffering are all woven into our public witness and that that will have an effect on the harvest. That's the point of those two verses. Anyway, right after those verses, he writes in chapter 2, verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the good, sorry, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now the king, when Peter wrote this, was Caesar. And the Caesar at that time, do you know who it was? Nero. Nero. That Nero. The crazy one who just killed Christians for fun and all sorts of horrible things. Just keep that in mind for, for a little context, all right? It goes on to servants and masters and more. Now, as we've talked about when we talk, this isn't a message. There, um, it, there's a couple statements in here, but it isn't, this isn't all about this. So bear with me. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea. This isn't a message about Christians and government. Not completely. Because we've talked about this before. There's a time to disobey. And, you know, if the king or the governor, or the president, or somebody says, no more Bible reading, no more preaching, no more church. We disobey, whether we have to do it in secret or whether we do it in open. And let me just briefly chase a rabbit here. This is a subject that is way too big to do, actually do it justice as an aside. So I'm just telling you right now, this isn't a comprehensive statement on it. But I just have to say something about this. Um, America is different. We talk about honoring authority, rulers, kings. So who is the supreme authority in this land? It's not a who, is it? It's the Constitution. That's, that's the rule of law. Our leaders are not technically leaders. They are servants. That's what we call everybody from the lowest city councilman to the president of the United States, public servants. All right? 
So there is certainly a time for Americans to dispute with public servants and officials as a way of honoring the law of the land, which is the Constitution. So you have no argument from me on there, there, but where I'm going in regard to that is how we go about that. Because Peter then, I'll circle back around to it in a minute, Peter spends a good deal of the rest of this letter talking about suffering. He says, don't be surprised by it. Don't let your faith be shaken by it. Jesus himself endured it. The big deal here, the main thing is as you suffer, make sure you're not suffering because you're a thief or a murderer or an evildoer. That's not something that brings glory to God. You probably will suffer for doing good, but make sure that's why. That's what Jesus did. It's all worth reading, uh, and we need to do a full series on these two letters, and we probably will, and I hope it's in the near future. But I want to rush ahead for right now into 2 Peter so that I can really get to my message. This is all my introduction. His opening section uh, is too powerful to skip over, so let me just read it really quickly here in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus, of Jesus our Lord, and as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But... Also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. To to perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things, if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, do you see where our focus here is to be? This, now, this making our call and election sure, let me put your mind at ease, that has nothing to do with earning your salvation. It has nothing to do with proving to God that you are worthy, that we are worthy. It's twofold. It's about living in such a way, make your calling and election sure, means living in such a way that people outside can have no doubt that there's a difference. Okay, you're making your call and election sure to other people, not yourself and not to God. They can see the difference how we live, between how we live and how they live. And it is about the maturing, the, the, the full-blown expression of our salvation. And when it talks about the abundant entrance, that is the well done. It's heaven's applause. It's our heavenly reward. You've heard me talk about people I've known, and I always think of one guy in particular who always said, well, I don't care what position I have in heaven. I don't care what my rewards are as long as I don't go to hell. You know, we, we, the, the, when we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, I used to just picture that's what everybody hears when they go there. You know, it's Jesus or you know, Peter, an angel, you know, it's like you're standing at a turnstile coming in after you die. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I don't think we're all going to hear that. I think there's going to be people who are going to be snatched from the flames. I love you. I'm glad you're here, but I had so much more in mind for you. Now get in there and enjoy it. And of some who have really poured their lives out, who have spent spent what God has given them in pursuing God's plan for their life, they come in and it's, woohoo! here he comes. This is the one I've been waiting to see. We talk about waiting to see people who've gone on before us. I think there are angels and believers up there who are like, oh man, I've heard so much about this guy. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Anyway, then he launches into, the, into his warnings about false teachers. And this is the center of his uh, second letter. And while his emphasis is certainly uh, false ministers in the church, there are absolutely applications to those who lead society, the influencers. Some of them are Christians. And some of, these, some of this bad leadership 
and attention comes under the guise of biblical social justice. And when you hear the phrase social justice warrior, don't let that make you scoff at the idea of social justice because social justice is absolutely at the core of the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. Social injustice was one of the main reasons that Israel and Judah were sent into captivity as a result of God's judgment. God is very concerned with social justice. But biblical social justice, a lot of times, looks different from secular social justice. Now, I will come back to that in a minute too. So after his general warnings about false teachers coming, he writes this in 2 Peter, beginning in verse 4. Sorry, 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood of, uh, on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those afterward who would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds." Now, it's a long introduction to the one thing he's going to say, which is, look, God has been sorting out these big issues forever. He didn't spare the angels who sinned. He didn't spare practically the whole ancient world, but he did save the eight people. Even though the whole world was crying out for justice, he didn't forget that there was Noah and his family. Even though the whole cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were crying out for justice, he did not fail to notice Lot and his family, and they escaped Verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Now, this is something. He's launched into something really, really important and very pertinent for our moment in history. The first thing he's saying is, don't worry about all this evil that's going on. God knows it's going on too. He will punish the evildoers and he will take care of you right in the middle of this. Don't worry about trying to tell God how to do his job. But... So again, there's, there, there's this reminder built in here that there's something better after this life. Don't despair no matter how bad it gets. The word of faith, the word of God is not a guarantee that life is going to be sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows while we're here. You know, I heard a quote the other day that went something like this. It was just a couple days ago. If you are being damaged by life's storms, the only possible explanation is that you are not doing or applying the word that you know and believe. Well, that, number one, kind of de depends on how you define damage. All right? Because uh, it looks to me like the Apostle Paul endured a lot of damage while he was in the middle of pursuing God's will and doing God's will. All right? Uh, the key is back in First Peter, is the suffering that you're, the damage that you're experiencing and the suffering that you're experiencing, is that due to the fact that you're doing good or doing evil? Anyway, when I heard that statement, I immediately classified it as toxic. You tell somebody that the only time they're going to experience damage is when they're not walking in faith and they're not doing the will of God, you are going to cause people to slip into despair. And it's not scriptural. But God knows that even though all of us are going to experience trials, and the promise is there that if any, all who desire to live godly are going to suffer, God still knows how to deliver us from those things, even if he delivers us through those things. You know, God didn't remove Noah from the world that was flooded he delivered him right through the flood, didn't he? 
Now, God didn't change Sodom and Gomorrah, and he didn't put Lot in a position of authority over them, but he got Lot and his family out. He rescued him. And God, in both cases, did indeed pour his judgment out on the rest of the world. In Noah's case, and the rest of the world, and the rest of those cities' populations in Lot's case. The judge of the earth will do what's right for the righteous, and he will do what's right for the unrighteous. Meanwhile, right here in this same passage, it's talking about those who will be judged, and they are described as self-willed and presumptuous, not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, this word dignitaries is a difficult word. Many translations render it as something along the lines of angelic beings, and this probably is the primary meaning. I can't guarantee you that. Uh, but in that sense, Peter is describing something that I have certainly seen, and I'm quite certain you have as well, around us today. There are certain people who are opposed to Christianity, and they're not making elegant or even intelligent philosophical arguments against our beliefs. Their argument isn't theological. Uh, they're simply scoffing at the very idea that there are supernatural beings, such as God, the devil, angels, and demons. How many times have you heard or read this phrase, oh, uh, what's the matter? Uh, don't you believe in your invisible sky daddy to take care of you? Has anybody heard that phrase? They, re they, re they ridicule Christianity as a belief as an invisible sky, invisible sky daddy. And then they go on and on, and they reduce certain core theological beliefs to the most ridiculous interpretation of those beliefs. Uh, and unfortunately, this kind of idea isn't limited to just the ignorant in our society. Richard Dawkins, uh, who's one of the loudest voices in atheism today, uh, and he's an accomplished bio uh, biologist. He's obviously an educated man, an intelligent man. And he's gone on record uh, telling fellow atheists to simply don't even argue with religious believers. Just make fun of them scoff at them and openly mock their beliefs in things like communion, angels, and demons. Those things are silly and they need to be told they're silly. And this, is, this is an educated man who, who has a very popular atheist. Now, most uh, philosophers, even atheistic philosophers, will tell you he doesn't make very sound arguments but he knows how to make them sound good for the general public. Anyway, he makes this statement. Um, just make fun of them. Scoff. Mock. Make them feel bad for believing the things they believe. Ravi Zacharias reported that, and he said, and I agree with him, and I volunteered to buy him an airplane ticket so that he can start practicing that in Saudi Arabia. Because let's face it, you make a statement like that, you're pretty much aiming it at Christians, specifically Western Christians, because you can't go to a Muslim culture and say that about Islam. I mean, you can for about an hour, yeah, for once. <laughs> now, there's another meaning to this word dignitaries. And almost every commentary endorses it. And it's talking about authorities, governing authorities. Now, again, we can take the attitude that the real authority in this country is the Constitution, but let's be reasonable and let's be consistent. Because when we read, pray for those in authority, we don't pray for our Constitution, do we? We pray for our president. Pray for his cabinet. We should be praying also for our senators, our representatives, our governor, our mayor, everybody in between. So let's be consistent. My point is we live in a society and in a moment where we have the right and the responsibility to oppose certain practices and policies of a government, whether that's the federal, state, or municipal government. But even in the midst of our protests, in the midst of our opposition, we should stand out as believers. Not only for what we believe in, but in how we go about it. As a believer, I, and, and as holding the political position that I hold, I'm offended when I see certain signs that attack candidates that I support or positions that I support. And I'm super offended when I, when I read signs um, 
directed at high-ranking government officials using language of a grade school bully, foul-mouthed grade school bully. It bugs me, but it bugs me more seeing that coming from believers. We cannot sink to that level. We're prohibited from doing that. That's speaking evil of dignitaries. It violates a scriptural principle of honoring those in authority, and it makes us indistinguishable from the rest of the world, which is what Peter's main point is, isn't it? You guys should stand out. We mustn't be afraid to confront justice, injustice and evil. You don't hesitate, for instance, this is, I mean, this is the example of, of the day. You should never hesitate to affirm, for example, that black lives matter. But before you align yourself with the actual BLM organization, you had better do some research and find out what else they stand for. Look at the very language that they use, and you'd better not be ashamed to distance yourself from that, even as you affirm black lives. If you join a protest or a demonstration, make sure that you are salt and light in the middle of that protest and, de and demonstration. The thing that disturbs me most at this moment, again, is not the, some of the things I see the heathens doing. It's what's coming out of the mouths and in the writings of supposed believers. I'm going to share this, and, and I wrestled with it, but it's just something that just really pierced me when I saw it. I know a couple, youngish couple, who served for years from the time they were kids in a church, served faithfully, loved Jesus. Far as I know, far as I know, they still love Jesus. But uh, there, there's a long story behind this, but now they are fully immersed in this particular social justice movement, and they have publicly stated that they've left the church. Don't say they've denied Christ, but they've left the church. And one of them, one, of, one half of this couple, quoted a well-known minister, fairly well-known, uh, who said, among other things, that America cannot be racist or else Obama would never have been elected and re-elected. Now, I disagree with that statement. Okay, it doesn't infuriate me, but I think it's wrong. I don't think, I think there's a, there's a connection there that he's making that I don't, but it doesn't matter. And she responded with three points. And the third point was simply this. Don't talk about Obama, you blankety blank. I can't repeat what she wrote. It was a curse word, a swear word. And in the comments, someone said this referring to the minister, he needs to never have the sacred name of Obama in his mouth ever again. And the original poster said, my thoughts exactly. Now, no matter who you support, no matter what you think about Obama or Trump or anybody else, is that not over the line as a believer in Jesus Christ? My you know who my favorite president was in my lifetime? Ronald Reagan. And if somebody, if some anti-Reaganite came out and said something nasty about Reagan, I might want to argue and I might get my back up, but I'm not going to say, how dare you utter the sacred name of Ronald Reagan. But this is where the passion and the anger has caused them to go. This is the kind of superiority attitude that's going to divide the church if we are not focused on loving one another first and foremost, which is why Peter places so much emphasis on that. I understand the passion, and I hope you do too. Don't be one of those Christians that poo-poos the whole idea of these protests. Either stay quiet or do some research. You know what the, what's the hot phrase now, I think? Maybe the hottest phrase is systemic racism. Oh, ridiculous. There's no such thing as systemic racism. Let me, let me give you a little homework for the week. If you got time, watch a movie called Just Mercy. Has anybody seen it? Wow. Watch it. I challenge you to watch it. And if it doesn't make your blood boil, I don't know what I can say to you. And then dig deeper when you watch a movie because it's based on a true story. Go read some articles that will tell you, because, you know, you watch something that based on a true story, then you find out, wow, they sure took a lot of liberties with this. Do some research to show how, fo how, how, how closely this movie follows uh, the story it's based on, because I did that, and I'm thinking, 
well, I really hated this guy in the movie, but, oh, wow, I hate this guy even more in real life. I hate him. You know what I mean? I was madder at them when I read about the story behind the movie. Watch that. And that's one simple thing. I don't mean, this isn't a a message about systemic racism. I'm simply saying, watch a movie, do the research, and then tell me there's no such thing. The thing is, remember how we defined white privilege a few weeks ago. White privilege doesn't mean you had everything handed to you. Doesn't mean you've never struggled if you are white. It simply means the color of your skin isn't making your life harder. That's a pretty safe and accurate definition of white privilege. Systemic racism doesn't mean everybody who's white is racist. Systemic racism doesn't mean that every single institution in government is targeting blacks. It simply means there are institutions and pockets in this country where it is absolutely the racists who are in power and they are exercising racist policies. You can't deny it if you do the research. So, again, understand the terms and understand the passion, but we don't, we can't as believers respond simply out of passion, certainly not out of anger, because love has to define us as a community of believers. If we can't do what we're doing in love, then we need to think really hard about doing it at all. Think about that before you put a certain sign in your yard. Certainly think about that before you post something on Facebook or Instagram or anything else. Is there anything about this post that distinguishes me as a Christian? Is there anything about this sign that would mark me as a questionable Christian or a non-Christian? Let me move on to my final point from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. 2 Peter 3, 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. Remember, this is why I love how he put this when he introduced this letter. You know, I'm thinking about what to do. I know I'm going to die soon, and what's the best thing I can do for you? I'm not going to lay any new teaching on you. I'm going to remind you of everything else you've been taught just so that you are steady, so that you are established. Verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now there's something super important to notice here. The complaint at first is, where is he? He said he's coming back. He hasn't come back yet. Starting to look like he's not coming back at all. But right on the heels of that is this. Everything stays the same. We move from a specific promise. Jesus says he's coming back. Where is he? Where's the promise of his coming? Since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation, everything continues just as it had been. Nothing's changing. Nothing changes. Does God hear my prayers? And it doesn't matter how many testimonies of answered prayer we hear. I've been praying for this thing for 10 years and nothing has changed. This can lead to atheism. There are some who don't believe in God because of how they were raised. All right? They've got to be, they have to have the gospel preached. We all need to have the gospel preached to us. But some haven't been saturated with it in their culture. Uh, Some apparently, or at least they seem to abandon their faith because of how they interpret science. They see science and faith as opposed to each other, and they believe the evidence of science, and so they figure if I'm going to believe the science, I have to abandon my faith. That's a misunderstanding of science. But that's a whole other sermon too. Uh, Romans 1 makes it pretty clear that deep down, people move away from the faith simply because of their evil desires and their lusts. Read the second half of Romans 1, see if you come to a different conclusion. Aldous Huxley famously wrote and very honestly wrote the following. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty 
to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. This is the driving force. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insisted, of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. You see what he's saying? I wanted to live a certain way. There was no way I could defend those desires from a Christian worldview. And if I move away from a Christian worldview, then I have to find, all right, well, then what is the purpose? What is the meaning of any of this stuff? I just want to get on with my, fulfilling my sexual lusts. And so here's the short answer. Why does anything have to have any meaning? That's pretty honest. Uh, there's somebody being honest. I want to live a certain way, so I just decide not to believe in anything that's going to keep me from living that way. And that's what Romans 1 essentially says. Now, that's not always a good starting point if you're going to discuss this with someone who's struggling with their faith. You can't just say, well, I'm struggling, but I'm not sure what I believe. Well, that's just because you're full of lust and you want to have a bunch of sex that you can't justify with the Bible. That's not a good evangel right there, okay? But biblically speaking, <laughs> that's correct. So atheism often springs from this. Being a Christian means I can't really do what I want to do, but it also finds fuel for this in unanswered prayer. It finds fuel for this in observing Christians who aren't behaving like they should, and Peter already addressed that. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, right? Interestingly, after writing about these scoffers, Peter writes this, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5. Remember what they said, since creation, things continue as they have been. Peter writes this in verse 5, for this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water, and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for the fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right after the complaint that nothing had changed since creation, Peter points out that, guess what? Here's, here's one big change I can point to, creation itself. God, by the power of his word, brought everything out of nothing. That was a pretty big change. Also, after that, he flooded the entire earth in judgment. That was a pretty big change. And he's saying judgment is coming again. It's the fire this time. And that will be a pretty big change too. Meanwhile, you and I and the whole world are preserved by the word of the Lord. There are going to remain questions. Probably every one of us, uh, if Jesus doesn't come back first, will go to our graves with unanswered questions. But don't throw away all you know just because you encounter something that you don't know. Don't throw away a hundred things you know for one thing you don't know. It seems like a long time. It might seem like a long time you struggle with this, but God measures time differently. And if it seems like he's waiting too long to answer your prayer, think about how long it seems like it's been since he has fulfilled the promise. There were people in Jesus' day, in Peter's day, in Paul's day, who were convinced Jesus had to be coming back any second now. And it's been 2,000 years. Remember why the delay? It's not a delay. It's not slackness. It's a manifestation of God's patience. The longer I wait, every day sees more people saved, more people harvested, more souls rescued from an eternity of flame. 
The maximum number of people have a chance to respond to the truth of the gospel. And Peter closes this all out by talking about the day of the Lord, the fiery destruction of the old universe and the glorious creation of the new one in which righteousness dwells. This is the new heavens and the new earth. And he essentially says this, since that can happen any day now, how should we be living? What do you want to be found doing when Jesus does come back? Whining, cursing, sinning in general, or do you want to be found loving, forgiving, believing, working, and watching? You can stand up with me now. Because as you think about the answer to that question, you need to understand this. It starts, it starts with a decision. Not the decision to just decide to do good. Because you cannot on your own decide to be the person that God wants you to be. God has to make you that person. You must be born again. Recognize your sin. Recognize that your sin separates you from God. And that reconciliation is only possible through the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross because of that sin. You place your life in his hands and when he saves you, you let him catch you and make you that new creation. And then what happens is he's in charge of the process of holiness. He's in charge of the process that makes you uh, steadfast, rock steady, right? He's the only one that can do it, and it starts with the decision. Romans 10, 9 says this, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is there anybody in here today who wants to make that confession of belief for the first time. Maybe you believe in God, but you've never personally committed your life to him. Maybe you've always sort of acknowledged that God exists, but you've never really believed in him, and you want to declare that belief today. Either way, it starts with a decision. It starts with a public confession, ultimately, of your faith. So I'm not going to make this any easier on you, I guess. I could have everybody close their eyes, but I'm not. You know what? Jesus endured what he endured very publicly. And all I'm asking you to do, I'm not going to pull a fast one and have you come down here. If you decide, you know what? Today's my day. I'm not going to pretend anymore. I know what drove me before, and I understand time is short. I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ today. Just raise your hand, and I'm going to pray with you. All right. Quickly, quickly, if you want to make that decision, give you, I'll give you five more seconds. Today is the day of salvation. All right. I trust that means most people in here are already believers. I pray that's the, truth, the case. Um, and if you decide five minutes after we walk out of this service or five seconds after, you know what? Should have done that. Come see me because I'll still pray with you. We are going to, uh, oh, wow. Let me, <laughs> I'm going to pray a closing prayer over this message, but I'm going to include it with praying over the offering we're about to receive. So uh, hopefully you got your envelopes. If you need an envelope, raise your hand. We'll try to get you one if you're giving cash, if you're writing check out, or if you don't have it made out yet, you can write it out to Living Word Family Church or LWFC. And anything you need to do while you're standing up, that's fine. Then go ahead and be seated. Uh, we're going to be done here in just a second. You can go ahead and be seated uh, while I pray. And remember, we're not going to uh, receive the offering. We're not going to pass the plates. But when I dismiss, when the ushers dismiss you, make your way out there, drop your offering in the receptacle, and then continue to move through the lobby to outside. I don't know if it's raining right now, but we do have a nice overhang. And in the interest of health, we are still practicing the social distancing, and fresh air is always a better environment, healthier environment anyway. So... Thank you again. Uh, thanks for your patience. This was a longish message. Uh, trust you were challenged. Trust you were blessed. Um, if you were blessed but not challenged, then examine yourself. 
If you were challenged but not blessed, I don't want to hear about it. Uh, I'm kidding. I always want to hear about it. Just be nice and be loving, okay? And thank you, thank you again for your continued support, your continued giving. This has been such a faithful, faithful congregation, and we are able to be such a blessing. Good news, heard from Neil and Danette. They made it to the United States. They almost had to sneak onto an airplane, but they're here, and I don't know how long they're going to be here, but we are going to have men before they go back, okay? You excited about this? Neil and Danette Childs from Africa, from our favorite missionaries and speakers. So keep that in mind. Maybe be setting something uh, special aside for them. Meanwhile, if you're ready to give, let me pray over what we've heard and what we've received today and over this offering. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence in this place today. Thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, that words written so long ago can have such a specific impact on our lives in this moment. Help us to see ourselves when we look at the scriptures and help us to ask ourselves the hard questions. Challenge ourselves with your revealed word and will. And help us to boldly proclaim the truth and give us the wisdom and the strength to do it in a way where society can see us and see our passion, see our compassion, and see our values and see justice and yet still see over everything else, love. They see the difference in us that only you can bring into our lives and that you can even in the midst of these turbulent situations make yourself known. And we can be used in the harvest in the middle of uh, troubled times. Father, we also thank you for your abundant provision in our lives, for taking good care of us in economically uncertain times. And it's our privilege and our pleasure to return a portion of that back to you now, according to your command, that we bring the tithes and the offerings into the storehouse. And we um, joyously anticipate the promise that you've attached to that particular form of obedience, that if we do that, that you'll open up the windows of heaven and pour into our lives a blessing there's not room enough to contain. We, by faith, receive the fulfillment of that promise, and we dedicate ourselves to spending that and using that blessing to further the kingdom of God, that we give and you give more, and we give back, and you give more, Father, so that we can continue to give and give again. All for the kingdom, all for the harvest. Bless this offering. Bless the gift and the giver. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.